This morning we will be looking at the end of chapter 19 and the beginning of chapter 20 of Luke's Gospel. We're continuing to see a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ as King. And so now if you would please give your attention to the reading of God's Word. The Word of the Lord is completely without error. The Word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the Word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Luke chapter 19, beginning at verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade round you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground and you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the city were seeking to destroy him, but they could not find anything they could do. For all the people were hanging on his words. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have brought us to this time and this place to hear your word. Please use your word, O Holy Spirit, to convict us of sin, to convince us of righteousness, and to heal us by the power of the gospel. This we ask in the name above all names, the name of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, here we have this morning a further picture of our Lord Jesus Christ as the King. You may recall that last week we saw our Lord Jesus entering into the city of Jerusalem and He was 
pronounced as a king, that there was a great celebration. And now here, Luke presents us with a portrait that we don't see as often in the Gospels of Jesus as our king. We see him reigning, as it were. We see him emphasizing the things that he would emphasize. We see him focusing on the things that he would focus upon. And so this morning, we see three characteristics of Jesus as our King. First, we see his compassion. Second, we see his zeal. And third, we see his wisdom. We see the compassion of the King and the zeal of the King. And then finally, the wisdom of the King. So this morning, let's take a look at our Lord Jesus. For he is indeed as much our king today as he was in the day that these events occurred. Let's begin then first by looking at his compassion. We see this beginning in verse 41. Luke tells us that as he draw near to the city, and as he saw it, he wept. And he said, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. Jesus is coming to the city, and he weeps over Jerusalem. But I think we need to remember first, before we can even examine this, the context in which verse 41 occurs. Now, I know for us, it's been a whole week since we saw Jesus entering into the city. But for Jesus, no time at all has passed. So you have to imagine verse 41 in the context of palm branches Waving, of cloaks laid down on the path for Jesus to enter, of the crowd shouting so loudly and a deafening roar that it's hard to hear anything else, Hosanna, Hosanna to the King. It seems like everyone is in favor of Jesus at this time. As a matter of fact, if In our imagination, we had commissioned a Gallup poll to go into Jerusalem and we'd asked only one simple question. Are you for Jesus or are you against him? The pollsters would have a very difficult time finding anyone to vote against. All of the city is in an uproar and there is great excitement behind Jesus. But there's a a deeper context here as well. You see, Jerusalem was a city that had a reputation. And it wasn't a good one. Jerusalem had a reputation for ignoring the word of God. For formality. For going their own way. As a matter of fact, the Lord had sent several prophets over the centuries before this to tell Jerusalem to repent, to call the people back to him. And their typical prophetic plan was to find the prophet and to kill him, to stop him from speaking. You see, their reputation was for ignoring God and killing his messengers. Jesus actually tells us this in in Luke chapter 13. He decries against Jerusalem. He tells them that they are the killer of prophets. And he says, Behold, you will not see me again. Your house is forsaken, and you will not see me until I come and they cry, Blessed is he 
who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus was right. They did not see him again until this time. So Jesus is entering into a place that is all awash with excitement for him, but has a reputation for dishonoring God and his word. How does Jesus respond to all of this excitement entering into the city? Well, the first thing we have to remember is that Jesus knows what is going on. Right? Jesus knows what's going to happen next week. More than that, Jesus knows what's in the hearts of those who are shouting Hosanna. Now, I want you to think about that. And just for a moment, put yourself in Jesus' place. Imagine if you were going to a place where everyone seemed to be supportive of you. But they had a reputation of talking behind your back. And insulting your kids. Making fun of your spouse. And you knew of a surety that the first chance they would get, they would stab you in the back. What would you think of that place? What would you do? Well, if you're anything like me, you would enter in there with anger, hatred, annoyance. Who are these people? Who do they think they are? What are they pretending? You would care less what could happen to them. But not so Jesus. Do you see this? That's why the context is so important. Jesus is about to enter Jerusalem, about to enter into a place where he is to be crucified. Crowds are praising him who one week from now will call for his death, who will prefer a criminal, rebel, rabble-rouser to the Son of God. And when everything within him, humanly speaking, should cause him to disdain them, He enters in and he weeps. That tells us something about the compassion of Jesus, doesn't it? It puts that in a context for us. And he weeps for them. We cannot think about this in our mind's eye as if there is some long, far panning shot of Jesus in which one single tear drops down his face. Luke won't allow us to do that. Because you see, the word that Luke uses for weep is the word we use of wailing, yelling, crying out to the heavens. You can't picture a soft single tear. You have to picture the emotion that comes upon someone when they learn that a loved one has died in a car accident in the middle of the night. When a child is lost and cannot find his parents. You see, Jesus is visibly upset by what is going on. And this also tells us something about Jesus, doesn't it? You see, I think too often we wish to cast Jesus in our image or in our ideal image. We think that emotion is bad, that it's unchristian, that we should be in control of ourselves at all times. And we picture Jesus that way. Luke won't allow us to do that. Luke tells us that emotion is good. That weeping in the right context is appropriate. That we were made by God to feel. To say otherwise is to deny the very nature of Jesus. 
And so Luke leaves us no wiggle room here. Jesus here has a longing for the people. And he weeps for them loudly and emotionally. And it not only reminds us that Jesus is the perfect man, but we have to remember what else is true about Jesus. Don't we? As the Bible teaches us, Jesus is completely and perfectly man, and at the same time, he is what? Completely and perfectly God. So Jesus, wailing over Jerusalem, tells us something about God. It tells us of God's compassion and love. You see, there are many things that cause us tension in the Bible, and I dare say that too often we try to resolve the tension with our failing human logic. God has given us minds. He has renewed them by the power of His Spirit, and He gives us His Word, but we are not the end, all, and be all. We use our minds and our intellect, but we must submit to the Scriptures. And the Scriptures teach us, especially here, that God is compassionate. I think sometimes, as we look into the Bible, and we see the great and biblical truth of God's divine sovereignty and divine election as we see that God is in control of everything, that He has numbered the hairs on our head, that He knows every day of our life, that all things come about according to His perfect and holy will. Once we understand that, we think that somehow, because God knows exactly those that are His, because He has called to Him His elect, we think God has absolutely no concern for those who are lost. But the Bible here teaches us otherwise. Jesus is going into Jerusalem. He knows what's about to happen. He knows the hearts of those who are there. He knows they're far from Him. He knows they will be lost, both temporally and eternally. And His response is not what we sometimes think in our minds is a collective divine shrug. Well, they weren't elected anyway. No, it's compassion It's weeping. Is that how we think about the lost? Do you have great compassion for those who are outside our walls now, rebelling against the church, rebelling against God, who want nothing to do with Jesus, lost in their sin? Does that cause you pain and anguish? Does it cause you to long to see them to come to Jesus? Or do you just say, well, as long as they stay on the other side of our moat, we'll be okay. Because you see, Jesus is the one we should follow. And Jesus bleeds compassion for the lost. There's another great truth that we are seeing here in this passage that I think sometimes... We are reluctant to face. Again, understanding the great backdrop and truth of God's divine sovereignty and election. We have to understand what we see here is the reality of a choice that is before every single human being. Look with me at verse 42. Jesus says, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. You see, the reality is that every single person in Jerusalem is faced with a choice. Jesus asks them. And Jesus asks you today. You must choose. Will you be my disciple? 
or will you be my executioner? Those are your only choices. You can submit to King Jesus. You can love him by faith. Or you can rebel and reject him. Those are the only two choices before the people. And you see, the people in Jerusalem react the way so many people in the world today react. They try and avoid the choice. You see, they're happy just that there's a party going on. You could just imagine this. People are coming. What's the big deal? What's going on? Jesus is coming in on the donkey. Everybody's having a great time. Here, take a palm branch. Woohoo! Right? They want to avoid thinking about the issue here that Jesus brings before them. And this is so true of our day and age, isn't it? We get distracted by ESPN. We get distracted by smartphones. We get distracted by our job. We get distracted by our children. We say, we'll think about this later. We'll deal with it later. I'll talk to my neighbor later. My coworker can see me later. But you see, the reality of the responsibility of human beings is seen here. Jesus says, would that you had known the things that make for peace. What are the things that make for peace? The Bible's very clear, isn't it? Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, repenting of one's sins, that brings peace with God. Luke told us at the beginning of his gospel that that's why Jesus has come to make peace. Now, this may make you uncomfortable. Pastor, how how can God be completely sovereign and completely in control? And how can men be completely responsible? All I can say to you is the Bible says both. Believe the Bible. Don't look for fancy words from me. Don't try and figure it out otherwise. If the scripture teaches it, we must believe it. Because if we don't understand it, the problem is with us, not with God. We're the ones affected by the fall. I mean, I can't remember where I left my keys last night. What makes me think I can solve this conundrum of the universe? You see, the scripture here teaches us that there is a very real responsibility in the midst of divine sovereignty. And that is a call for you and for me to be faced with this choice. To see Jesus for who he is. And to recognize him for that. Because you see, our God is a good and gracious and long-suffering God. Isn't he? That's how the Bible describes him. But Jesus here tells us that God's patience runs out. Do you see this? Would that you had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now, but now what? They are hidden from your eyes. The time of repentance is past. God has extended his gracious hand and you have slapped it away for the last time. You see, God's patience runs out. We tend to think that time will just go on forever. We act as if God will simply ignore our rebellion over and over and over again. And this is natural to us, isn't it? We go to apply to a school and we see a a very clear deadline, but we we don't want to write the essay, we don't want to do the work, and we put it off to the side. And every once in a while we look and say, we really should get to that. And then as the date gets closer, we say, well, you know, they'll take it a day late. I'm sure they will. Oh, you know, it's only a week late. They'll take it a week late. Right? 
Or we get a ticket on the highway. And we see that we're to appear before the judge on a certain day. And we, we don't get around to getting all the paperwork together. And we say, oh, I'm busy that day. I'm sure I could just go to the judge the next week. And then we're surprised when after the deadline is passed that the college says, no, we gave your spot away. There was a deadline. No, you're guilty on this traffic charge. You were supposed to be here if you thought you were innocent on a certain day and time. But you see, that's our tendency to think that we have the right to impose on other authorities. And Jesus here is saying to Jerusalem and to you and to me, he is saying there is a day of reckoning. There are real consequences that come from ignoring it. He gives us a crystal clear example in verse 43. He says, For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade round you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear down you to the ground. Now what Jesus is describing here came to pass exactly like this within one generation. You see, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the ones who waved the palm branches, the ones who shouted crucify him, the ones who thought that his disciples were crazy when they said that he was risen, they just assumed time would go on as it had, over and over again, and that nothing would change. But Jesus says, no, everything will change. And one generation from now, Jerusalem would rebel against the Roman Empire. And the great general Titus would build up an earthenworks like they had never seen before to get right up to the top of the high walls. And because of their rebellion, the order was to destroy the city completely and wipe out the entire population and to make the city as if no one had ever lived there. The only thing that was left were three tall towers. And the only reason the Romans left them was so that passersby could see how powerful the Roman army was that it overcame defenses like that. It is said that Titus, who had ordered the slaughter of the whole city and who had ordered the destruction, when he came upon his work, he threw up his hands to heaven and wondered what he had done. That's how vast the devastation was. You see, Jesus is saying that there is a reality to life. The choice that comes before you to seek Him or to deny Him. To submit to Him or to rebel against Him. There is a day of reckoning for that decision. Do you see the choice? Do you see the choice for yourself? Do you see the choice for others? For you see, pretending it's not there doesn't change reality. Do you long to have the compassion of Jesus? Do you weep over the lost? That's what your king does. The second thing we see here in Luke's passage is the zeal of the king. We see it here in verse 45 as Jesus enters the temple and he begins to drive out those who sold saying, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, and you have made it a den of robbers. Jesus comes in, and he cleanses the temple. Now, we have to admit, it is very unusual for us to see Jesus this way. We're used to seeing Jesus in his patience, being 
Jesus meek and mild, right? Although this expands our horizons of the nature and the character of Jesus. As one person has said, if you're asking yourself, what would Jesus do? Remember that throwing over tables and hitting people with whips is not out of the question. That's what Jesus would do in this situation. He did it. It's so unusual, though, that all of the gospel writers highlight this. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all describe this incident at the end of Jesus' ministry. But John adds a further point to us. He describes something that's nearly identical that happens at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So this isn't the first time he's done this. What does this mean? Well, I think the modern view of Christianity and what it means can be summed up in one word. Niceness. We're supposed to be nice, right? We're supposed to not make any waves. We're supposed to be nice to people no matter what they do or what they think, or what they say, or what they believe. We're supposed to be tolerant. That somehow is the defining characteristic of Christianity. We're supposed to not make any waves and to act as if there is plenty of time for anyone to think about Jesus. The problem is, is this cuts exactly against what we've just seen. Jesus describing a day of reckoning. Jesus describing a choice that's before us. Jesus pouring out compassion for the lost. Here Jesus is downright impatient, isn't he? He's very active. He doesn't walk up to the money changer's table and say, well, what are your motives for this? And do you think you could decrease your commission 3.5% to give people a break? Could we find some, some common ground here? Right? No! Jesus comes in. He's actually, after a fashion, violent. The word that's used here by Luke to describe how he cast out, drove out those who sold, is the same word that Luke uses to describe Jesus driving out demons. It's to throw something out. You might picture... In your mind's eye, the old-time cartoons where someone would exit a building by someone else grabbing them on the collar and on the seat of the pants and heaving them out the door. Jesus is not being gentle here. It's because there's a lot at stake. Now, we are tempted to see this fashion, see this action, as if it were occurring within our church building. And what we think Jesus is concerned about is the impropriety of what they're doing. We see it as the equivalent of people out in our lobby selling Jesus t-shirts on Sunday. Or people coming dressed in the wrong clothing and they need to go out and get the right clothing on. Or people who dare bring the wrong instruments in to play music and we need to get them out and get the appropriate things in. We think it's all about impropriety, but you see, it's actually not at all. What Jesus is concerned about is bringing the gospel to the lost. This isn't about church etiquette. You see, Jesus is quoting here from Isaiah 56. And that makes all the difference. 
See, when we first think of house of prayer, we think of a quiet place where believers can gather in comfort. But when the Bible talks about the temple as a house of prayer, it is a place for unbelievers to come to hear about the living God and to be challenged to place their faith and trust in Him. Where this is happening in the temple is in the court of the Gentiles. It is the only place in all of the temple area where the lost can go. And you see what Jesus is saying. This should be the mission field and you're making it Walmart. The Gentiles can't go any other place to hear about God. They can't see God at work. This is where they have to come. And that's why he quotes Isaiah. Isaiah 56 verse 6 says this. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord, to be His servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, all those who are converted, all those who come from the ends of the earth to see God. Where do they go? I will bring these to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. You see, the house of prayer, the temple of God, where God's name is known, where Jesus is described, that is the place where the hopeless find hope, where the cut off find connection, where the dead find life. Isaiah says earlier in verse 3, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord surely will separate me from his people. Let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. Jesus is saying, You should be the intermediaries between God and the lost. You should be his ambassadors. You should be the one taking the word, and instead you're trying to make a profit off of it. Now that's a challenge for you and me, isn't it? Because sometimes we can get hung up on impropriety in the church. Sometimes we can think the focus is about us. We can have the same kind of failure to evangelize others. You see, we can be tempted to think of our own comfort and benefit instead of the free grace that others need. Jesus is focused here just as he was in his compassion. He is zealous that the lost come to know God. But it's not just an emphasis upon the lost as well. There is truly something for those in the church. Jesus is also concerned about his people's spiritual well-being. Because there's another thing that he sees here and that is hypocrisy. He knows that the people of God are called to be holy and pure. He knows that the church is called to be a city on a hill. To be a shining example to the people out in the highways and the byways. And the problem is, is that Israel here in Jerusalem is acting just like unbelievers. They're not honoring God. They're not worshiping God. They're trying to make a quick buck. So he doesn't only quote Isaiah, he quotes... Jeremiah, he says, you have made it a den of robbers. 
And this comes from Jeremiah chapter 7. As Jeremiah declaims against Jerusalem. He says, you have made the temple a den of robbers. You walk around and you comfort yourself with vain words. Jeremiah says, you walk around and say, the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. Jeremiah says, you walk around and you say, we are delivered. You don't show it. You don't act on it. You don't tell others about it. Now, we don't have a temple of the Lord, do we? But we have, I go to church. No, I also go to Sunday school. Oh, I went forward to that camp 10 years ago. We are delivered. You see, Jesus challenges not only Jerusalem, but he challenges you to live like one who has been delivered. Don't trust in bare words. The prophet Isaiah, the prophet Jeremiah, and the prophet of all prophets, the Lord Jesus Christ, cries against that. There's a third thing that we see here. We see the wisdom of the king at the end of 19 and in chapter 20. And this also shows Jesus' passion for the lost and for evangelism. It's interesting, Jesus clears out the temple, and then in verse 47, he begins teaching daily in the temple. So, he begins using the venue he has. He's teaching and preaching the gospel, Luke tells us. And the leaders, the chief priests, the scribes, and the principal men of the area, they all come together and agree about one thing. You would think they might say, isn't it wonderful the Bible's being opened? Isn't it great that Jesus is teaching about grace and about healing and about God? Instead, what is their response? This guy's horning in on our territory. He's doing, nobody can control him. You don't know what's going to come out of his mouth. Let's kill him. We got to stop this guy. Do you see? They just want control. And they're all united, men of all different persuasions. They're all united because the one thing they can't have is a loss of control. Jesus is out there. He is connecting with people. He is teaching them truth. He is changing lives. So they develop a plan. It's a very subtle plan. As an aside, this is how Satan attacks. It's how he always attacks. You see, I think in our mind's eye, we expect Satan to attack with with fireballs and blasphemies. And we're prepared to brace ourselves against something like that. When in reality, Satan comes like he came to Eve. Did God really say that? Are you sure you didn't misunderstand him? That's how Satan attacks. And so they come to Jesus... In the same way. And they come to challenge his authority. They say, by whose authority do you do this? Inform us. Now notice what they don't do. They don't come to Jesus on the merits. They don't say, Jesus, you teach this. Show us that in the Bible. They don't say, you say the Bible says this. We believe it teaches that. No, they only are worried about authority and control. And so they come to Jesus using their standards to try and seize control back from Jesus. And after all, isn't this what everybody does today? They try to 
get control. They try to talk about the authority. Even in the church, there are people every day who look and say, what right does Jesus have to tell me who I should get married to? What right does Jesus have to tell me how I should conduct business? What authority does Jesus have? You see, that's what they're doing. And Jesus' response is absolutely brilliant. He says, I have a question for you. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Now, this is not merely a one-upsmanship game. This is not Jesus saying, you ask me a tough question, I'm going to ask you a tough question. They're related. Because they're asking Jesus about what? His authority. And he says, what do you think of John? He's putting them on a dilemma. Because the people believe that John was a prophet of God. But John didn't have authority from them either. Why didn't they ask John about his authority? And even further than that, John declared that Jesus was what? The Christ. And so if they say John's baptism was of heaven, they've answered their own question. If they think John was from heaven, John declared Jesus was the Messiah, and that's Jesus' authority. So they don't have a way to answer it because they're only concerned about authority. They're not concerned about truth. They want to ignore John. They want to ignore Jesus. They want to ignore all the things Jesus has done. They want to ignore all the things that Jesus has taught. And there's an irony here. Do you see that Jesus is not concerned about control? He doesn't tell them about authority. He has authority, doesn't he? He doesn't set them straight. Jesus is once again only focused on the gospel and the lost. That's why he gives them John's question. Because what was John's declaration above all? Repent! You see, Jesus says, I'm not worried about the authority right now. I'm worried about the lost hearing God's claim upon their life. And so the question then comes to you and to me. What are we concerned about? Especially today, this is critical. Are we concerned about control? Because I'm afraid we are. In the quiet places of our hearts and in our homes, we fret about Congress, don't we? And about judges. And about workplace regulations. And about universities and professors. We fret about our loss of control as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. How other people have authority over us who oppose Jesus. This morning, Luke gives you a word of comfort. Beloved, control is not your problem. It's Jesus' problem. He will take care of it. Your focus should not be upon control. It should be upon the mission of Jesus as King and Lord of your life. As He goes forward, His focus should be your focus. To show compassion to the lost. To show zeal for the holiness of God and for the mission that God has given to His ambassadors. And to show wisdom. To show wisdom to prioritize 
the eternal life that we hold in our hands as a free offer. This is our focus. Let Jesus be the King. Let us follow Him wherever He goes, whatever He says, whatever He does. This is the calling of followers of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank You for this word from Your servant Luke. We ask, O oh Lord, that You would give us opportunity to live out Your command in our lives that we would be zealous for your glory, that we would be zealous for your gospel, that we would weep compassionately for the lost, long to see them brought to Christ. This we ask in the name above all names, the name of our King, Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen.